1: Do you ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we are three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen. And we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mention in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, Diana. Hi, Debbie. It's so good to see you. Good to see you, too. It's been a while since we recorded a podcast together because we had a few guests in a row, so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it was fun to see you in person a little bit ago when you came to Santa Barbara. We had sort of a um, reunion of psychologists here, and it was fun to take an ocean dive with you and a yoga class and have some real in-person time
1: together. Yeah, it was really nice to see you, too. It was a quick trip, but very memorable, especially that cold ocean plunge. Yes. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk to you about today's topic. Today, um, Diana and I are going to be talking about technology and the role that technology plays in our lives, which seems to be more and more a bigger and bigger role over time. And so um, definitely a hot topic.
0: Mm -hmm. It's really hard to believe that the iPhone was introduced only about 10 years ago uh, in 2007. And how much has changed in our lives since since then? And I was thinking about it, that our phones pretty much run our lives. So everything from our alarm clocks to our workouts, to tracking our fertility, to, I mean, I was thinking about my mom's phone number. I don't even know her cell phone number if I needed to call her an emergency because it's in my phone. Mm -hmm. Um, And they store our most intimate details about ourselves and communicate to our most important people. And we've gotten really attached. So we've also noticed starting to emerge in clinical practice and working with our own kids. And then also in terms of the research, there's some problems associated with um, this increase in use in technology. Uh, in 2015, the Pew Research Center reported that 72% of U.S. adults own smartphones. And there may be some um, issues with overuse in terms of underlining our well-being. So today we're going to talk about some specific areas. Uh, we're going to start by talking about how they uh, can be addictive. And then we're going to talk a little bit about how smartphone use and technology may be impacting our sleep, our attention span, relationships, and our physical health. And then we're going to hopefully uh, explore some strategies that we could use so that we could engage with our technology in a little bit more of a sustainable way.
1: That sounds good. It's hard to even imagine life without an iPhone now. It's hard, It's amazing that it's been 10 years because it's just so pervasive in our lives. And I think that, you know, for the purpose of today for this podcast, we're really going to focus on some of the downsides of technology and how it's affecting people. But we want to also just acknowledge that, you know, the the smartphones and internet and technology can be useful, too. I mean, it helps us stay in touch with people. It helps us stay informed about current events. It can really add to efficiency and convenience. So, you know, it's not inherently bad. Um, But what I think something that we've really noticed that I think will come up a lot today is that it can get so easily out of balance for people that it can just take over. And technology is changing so rapidly that we don't really have a great understanding of the long term impact of all this technology use. And I think that, you know, people are getting more and more interested in this as a research topic and thinking about how it plays out in their lives. But it's just still also new. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I thought it might be kind of fun to start out with just to have our listeners spend a couple seconds just thinking about how much, time you spend on screens, and I'm not counting work or listening to music, but just, you know, on devices and screens and technology and just sort of estimate how much time per day you think you might spend, Um, just to kind of give a sense of what a big piece of your life it might be. And also to just suggest that, there's a possibility that you're actually underestimating your daily usage. Um, there's been some studies that have suggested that people tend to guess about 50% too low in their estimate of how much they use. So whatever number you came up with that you think you're using per day, you might actually be using it even more. And the average person, um, it looks like, might be using it up to about three hours a day, some sort of device or screen, um, and picking up their phones like many, many times throughout the day.
0: Mm-hmm. It becomes sort of an automatic habitual response. And I imagine that if you just think about it right now, you know where your phone is, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> and a, you do you not know, appendage. Where your are, <laughs> right. you don't know where your keys are, or your purses or a whole lot of other things, but you do know where your phone is. And it, it's like a, a sort of a second brain for many of us. And it seems that we, um, you and I read this book Irresistible by Adam Adler, which was talking a lot about uh, behavioral addictions and specifically, behavioral addictions around technology. And he talks about how this um, use of phones is on the rise. So in 2008, we spent 18 minutes a day on our phones. Well, gosh, they'd only been around cell phones. With those um, smartphones would been around for a year. So we were just figuring out how to use them probably mm-hmm. at that point in time. And now it's up to three. Uh, then it was up to three hours by 2015. So as this rapid overuse or use is happening, we're starting to see um, sort of one of the first problems, which is this habitual nature to phone use and even the concept of behavioral addiction, of maybe even being addicted to our phone, like we can't leave it.
1: Yeah, and I think phones are especially tricky and problematic because we have them with us all the time. Like you said, you probably know where yours is right now. And unlike, you know, a desktop computer, which stays in one place, or even a laptop, you know, people are they have their phones in the car and their beds. You know, I see people at my work sometimes walking up and down the stairs while looking Mm -hmm. at their phone. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's part of the problem is that it's just in your hand so much. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, well, why don't we dive in and start talking about uh, what some of the latest psychology research has to say about this technology use so far. So one of the first issues that we want to talk today is this issue that diana just mentioned about behavioral addiction and it's interesting because i think the use of the word addiction is used pretty loosely in this context because people use it a lot of times to be like oh i was so addicted to this one app or this one Mm -hmm. you know tv show i was binge watching or i was um you know addicted to one video game or something like that um that's probably not what a psychologist would really mean by the technical definition of, of addiction. But we can what we can really see is a pretty big range in how problematic technology can be for people. Everything from just spending a little bit too much time on screens at the expense of other things we want to be doing. You know, we feel this pressure to be, uh, you know, working all the time, checking our work email or keeping up with social media or just, you know, when you get bored, if you're waiting in line or something like that or just the sort of constant and automatic nature of it, which I think a lot of us can probably relate to that to some degree, a lot of us smartphone users. Um, So that's probably on the less extreme end, but still a little bit problematic. But it really can be more serious for some people, and some people do seem to have a pretty serious behavioral addiction um, to, you know, video games and to social media. And it can be really problematic for people if they basically stop the ability to freely choose whether or not they're going to keep doing the behavior or if they start to experience adverse effects in their life. Like, you know, for instance, a student who fails out of college because they can't stop playing a video game and they just spend days and days playing it and they never leave their, you know, their dorm room. Um, That's a pretty serious problem. And more and more, I think that, um, you know, there's treatment centers and people are sort of acknowledging that this is a real problem for people.
0: And Adam Atler talks about how these games are actually designed to be particularly addictive. So, behavioral addiction is actually a new, a newer concept in psychology. in, in terms of it, was just introduced into the DSM-5. So, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, describes the different psychological disorders, and it's only recently that it included beh- behavioral addictions as as an Axis One disorder. Um, So the nature of behavioral addictions is that they actually activate the same brain areas that you see with substances um, of addiction. So, for example, that dopamine system, the reward system and dopamine being a neurotransmitter that is specifically associated with wanting or craving, not necessarily liking that's actually a different system. So when you are engaging in an addictive substance and you have that sense of I want it again, like you have that craving for a donut as you drive or smell the donuts, that is your dopamine system giving you that wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, that's why with some of our addictions, we can continue to want them even though we don't like them anymore, continue to use the substance, even though you don't like it. Mm-hmm. So for a for something to be addictive, we need to activate that dopamine system. And certainly the rewarding nature of uh, cell phones, getting some reinforcement from the cell phone, um, bings and pings and likes and all of that are rewarding or gaming is very rewarding in combination with addressing a psychological pain or discomfort. So that pairing of the two. So for example, if you're thinking about you're waiting in line and you're bored, you have that psychological pain or discomfort and then you can turn to using your phone to escape from that. And then your phone gives you a little bit of a dopamine hit. It's a little bit rewarding to look at your Facebook or see if someone saw your photo. So that would be sort of mildly reinforcing and why you'd go back to doing that again and again. But there's certain times or populations that are actually more susceptible to our phones or gaming to be particularly addictive. So if you think about a young adult who's feeling lo- left out and lonely, then you may go online and be able to find a friend in Dubai and play a video game with that person. So you get to have that dopamine system being activated from the video game in combination with that psychological need being met. And that's sort of the deadly combo for things being particularly addictive.
1: Mhm. It just keeps the behavior going because yeah, it's so reinforcing that pattern. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And what I was really interested in is learning more about how our the architecture of video games and also social media are actually they're designed to be particularly right for views, particularly addictive. And there was four main qualities that are associated with that. So the first is, do you remember um, intermittent reinforcement from? Oh yeah. From good old
1: Skinner, right. (laughs) Good old Skinner, right. Behavioral psychology days. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. And actually we use it a lot. I mean, I use it a lot talking about a lot of different things in my practice, this concept of intermittent reinforcement. Actually I talk about with parents and tantrums
1: Uh quite a
0: bit. Um,
1: And I think a good shortcut for intermittent reinforcement so you can remember it is to think of slot machines at casinos that Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, sometimes you get a reward, sometimes you don't. And so you can go a little while, but you still keep wanting more reward and every once in a while you get one. So it just keeps the behavior going because you never know when you're going to get that reward.
0: Right. So behaviors that are reinforced in an intermittent way like that are particularly strong and difficult to change or to put on what's called extinction, which is ma- making that behavior stop. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, that's why slot machines are so successful and actually one of the biggest money makers in Vegas because of intermittent reinforcement. But there's also intermittent reinforcement built into things like Facebook. So if you look at Facebook and the Facebook interface, it's filled with a a few different numbers and stats that you look at every time on Facebook. You look at the number of people who like this, the number of shares, and the number of comments. And so every time one of those numbers goes up, you're getting a little reinforcement. And a little intermittent reinforcement because it doesn't go up every time you look on Facebook or every time you post something, right? And it's a little bit random. Same thing with Instagram or other things of people liking it. So social media is designed to be a beautiful intermittent reinforcer, which means you're going to keep on going back to get to see Mm -hmm. if you got that point. And likewise, video games are intermittently designed to be intermittently reinforced. So they design video video games so that you get a win pretty early on, so you get a sense of success, and then they move out um, the rewards in the video games sort of at further and further distances in terms of your quests or the efforts as you go along so that it takes longer to get reinforcement, but it's also somewhat random that... You get that reinforcement. It's not always a guarantee, and that's what keeps you playing. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect, yeah, that makes them addictive. Um, another addictive quality uh, too is that um, uh, the juice that they put in games. So do you remember? Did you ever play Candy Crush?
1: I didn't. I've heard a lot about it and I've seen it, but I've, I never got into it. Luckily, I avoided that one. Did you?
0: Yeah. I, I played it a little bit, and I actually I saw it a lot among like my mom's friends playing Candy Crush, uh-huh. and it was, it's this game. It's a lot like Tetris. And it's it's filled with juice. So by juice, meaning there's lots of like bright lights and pretty colors and sounds that go off. And actually that makes us want to engage with something more. Rats will press a lever for like sugar water and cocaine a lot more quickly if you give them pings and sounds and bright lights while they're pressing the lever. And humans are not far off (laughs) from this. So we love the juice that they put into the games and, and likewise Candy Crush is this other, has this other component and, and video games has this other component of Our brains love to to meet to have goals and to achieve things. Like we really want to achieve. And so with Candy Crush, all these if you line up all of the candies, you get this little thing and they disappear. And so you have this reward of getting your goal met, and then it instantly disappears. And then you have to work at the next goal. And meanwhile, the board is getting filled up with candies. So it's this never-ending mess that you have to clean, but then you're getting rewarded for these small little tasks in the corner. And that makes it particularly Oh, addictive. man,
1: I can never play that. I will <laughs> lose hours. Yeah. It sounds really, yeah, yeah. Easy to so get
0: the combination, on that one yeah of juice. and then also uh, this goal setting that we you know we think about also with the goal setting with other um, technologies in terms of, you know, people wanting to get ten thousand steps and that even got addictive for folks, right? They wanted to what my husband used to walk around our living room to get his ten thousand steps by the end of the day.
1: Oh did, just you, did, did you see the David Sedaris article about this? We can link to it.
0: Did you yes. see that?
1: Yeah. Yes. He just kept yeah. getting more and more steps till he was just walking all day just to get steps. Pretty funny. Humorous yeah. take on it. Yeah.
0: Well Yeah. We just want it. We, our brains just are. And that's totally evolutionary, right? Yeah. It's a good, good thing to set goals and get them if it means it's going to make a fire and food for the night, but not so meaningful if you're just like deleting bright colored candies on a screen. Right.
1: right. For um, hours.
0: <laughs> yeah. So then, and then finally, um, the, these these uh, our, our phones and games can be particularly addictive because they create these these social connections or this feeling of social connection, which is so reinforcing, and rewarding. It's one of our core basic needs as humans, and they can also relieve psychological stressors through distraction and avoidance. So all of that put together makes them really ripe for um, overuse.
1: Absolutely. Um, and another, a second issue that that more and more research is suggesting is that that the use of screens and and smartphones is really impacting our sleep. And it seems to be the phones more than anything else. You know, obviously, since it's easy to lug them to bed um, that are most problematic and they're very, you know, easy to do all hours of the night. And just a couple things that, that um, is out there. So. It seems like the phones sort of keep us awake even when we're tired. So at night, normally, you know, our bodies kind of unwind. Our pineal gland produces melatonin, which makes you get tired. But when you're staring at the light from a smartphone, that kind of blue light from the screen, it, you know, goes into your, through your eyes, through the retina, and basically makes your brain think it's time to be awake. So it sort of tricks, throws off your circadian rhythm in that way, Um, and also, you know, there's just so much information that we can be looking at right before bed. And a lot of people sleep with their phones right by their beds and don't turn them off, um, use mm-hmm. them for an alarm clock and whatnot. Um, and it just gets really gets us going, it's sort of stimulating. And I know for myself, just kind of a quick personal example that there's been so much going on in the news lately. I, For a while, I had a, a habit that was not very helpful to me, which is that I'd stay up too late just... Reading the news on my phone. First mm-hmm. of all, I was staying up later than I should have been just doing that. And it was sort of stimulating. So it was keeping me awake past the point where I was tired. But then also, I'd finally get to the point where I'd be like, okay, enough. And I'd turn it off. And then my mind was just sort of buzzing with all the news mm-hmm. and, you know, just thinking and worrying and stuff like that. So I noticed for myself, I was going to sleep much later than I really wanted to using my phone. And I think a lot of people can can relate to that. And there's Mm -hmm. there have been some studies, there was a study at the University of Rhode Island, where they asked college students to keep track of their iPhone use and sleep and or smartphone use. And about 40% said they woke up at night to answer phone calls and 47% said they woke up at night to answer text messages. Um, and of course those people had poor sleep quality, which was also predicted um, sort of linked to depression and anxiety, which makes a lot mm-hmm. of sense. You know, that really does take a toll on your, on your mood.
0: Mhm. And this unlimited sort of leaving your phone on overnight, I see it a lot uh, with, with some of my college students and when they, Talk. I often ask about their phone use and ask about their sleep. And when they talk about their phone use at night, they say they leave on their phone, one, because they don't want to miss out on what's happening at night, or they wake up in the morning and it's the first thing they do is look at their phone to see what happened. So it's it's that this whole life is happening overnight while they're trying to sleep. And your brain is monitoring that. I mean, our brain is really good at having sort of a running its own running app right, uh-huh, right. and if, if you have an app that is running that's trying to to figure out if, if my phone is collecting you know information it's going to be hard to turn off your, your brain to go to sleep and that's such an important time for your brain to do is cleaning and you know integrating information and just restoring itself so that it's ready for the next day removing toxins So that's um, a real concern and the fear of missing out I think is uh, sort of the theme here that (laughs) is part of whether it's missing out on news or it's the the rapid pace of things that there's always more and more and more that you could be getting information from your phone or reading about and at some point we have to to be able to put it down and turn it off and that's That's more sort of our job to figure Mm -hmm. out what we're talking about today.
1: So that leads to the anxiety and stress. Yeah, right. <laughs> Another problem of, of related to this technology use is how it how it impacts stress and anxiety. All of
0: the beeps and alerts that are going on, bings and pings. So I was just putting my my kids to bed before we were talking, Debbie, and my phone went. Bloom, 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 bloom. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a sound I usually hear from my phone, but it's the <laughs> Skype sound. <laughs> I think you were lying. Oh, wrong. sorry. <laughs> so here's what happens, right? I'm putting my kids to bed, and I hear bloom, 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 bloom. and so I start thinking, oh, I better hurry this up. Ah, uh, yeah. oh, How sad! I, I just a sad face. How sad! <laughs> I'm singing my song that we sing a couple of songs at night, and now I'm singing my song really quickly. Mm-hmm. I have to go because my phone just interrupted a really precious time. And even though I, you know, I knew I, we had our time set and I would, it would have been fine if I went two or three minutes over. So that's the fear of missing out. And what was I really missing out on in that moment? Singing to my kids.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right. That's what I'm missing out on. I'm not missing out on being on time for Debbie. Right. right? This
1: lovely. Like in, you know, connected moment with, people who are right there in front of you right
0: yeah i don't have that much longer that i'll be able to sing to my young boys right it's yeah. a short period of time you get to sing a song and they actually think that it's yeah. not ridiculous right? right um so so the fear of missing out we you know there is a, a research at Cal State University, where they took away smartphones from college students for an hour, and they had had them in three different groups. So one group was light users, and for light users, there was no change in anxiety when they took away their phones. But for moderate users, they started to experience anxiety after about 25 minutes, and and it remained at a moderate level for the rest of the time. Heavy users, we, they saw an increase in anxiety after only 10 minutes of their phone being away, and it continued to increase throughout the hour. So the take-home message being really the more that you use, the more fear that you have of being away. And it's sort of this insidious loop, right? So you're fearful of being away from your phone, so therefore you use it more, you keep it on you more. And we see this um, not only with phone use, but also with people being really locked into emails. So there was. When I was in graduate school, it was emails were like you had to respond within the hour. Was that like, was it like that for you in graduate school with emails?
1: Uh, More so toward the end. Yeah. Became where people would expect a reply right away. And it didn't matter if they sent the email, you know, late in the day or early in the morning or something like that. It was. Yeah. There's a I little think it pressure. depends on what setting you're
0: in around email. use. Now, if you can meet an email, you're lucky if you get a reply. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, emails, I'm so slow on. Yeah, but um, you're probably
1: but, an outlier in that. I mean, yeah. although no, with text messaging, maybe not so much. But yeah, text, I mean, but I think people you know. are expected to be on a, a lot. Right.
0: They're expected to be on and expected to be responsive. And there was a um, study that showed that 70% of office emails are read within six seconds. So this sets up this expectation to be at your desk, and as a result, you're sitting there. It's it's basically another version of Candy Crush, right? As soon as the emails are coming in and you're dealing with the next email, meanwhile, you're not dealing with the rest of the pile of stuff that really needs to be dealt with, and you're locked onto your desk. You don't have great attention, and it really prevents office workers from doing things like, like going outside or being able to stay on task and... Um, you have a high alert, so they saw they found some research that showed decreased heart rate variability when people are so um, checking their emails all the time and so alert, which is decreased heart rate variability is associated with basically stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we actually look at what happens when we limit people from checking their email or ask them to keep their phones away, so if, if there was uh, a.k.a. Monitor is uh, American Psychological Association puts out sort of a magazine that gifts sort of current research topics and they recently had a whole article that I really really liked on um, technology use well and we
1: can link to that on our web we'll page link to it. so yeah can find it's, it. it's a good article. article yeah it's
0: a good article and actually I started applying in my practice with people one was some research by Costanzin Cushlin who said that when we did a study where she found that People who limit email to checking to just three times per day, they saw decreases in daily stress, increases in mindfulness, and increases in self perceived productivity and quality of sleep. So actually containing the madness, like having a limit on this is when I check email. And I certainly do that um, to the best of my ability, where I really don't check email all that frequently. I I mean, unless I know an email is coming in, I'll check it maybe, I don't know, maybe three times a day. I don't know. How how often do you check your email? How much are you checking with that?
1: It depends what I'm doing. I would say the days that I'm at work, I do tend to just keep it open all the time during the times that, you know, not when I'm meeting with a client, but when I'm just sitting at my desk typing on the computer or something like that, um, I keep it open a lot. And then I might check my email as I'm on the go. So I'd say Mm -hmm. I definitely maybe need to consider working on this and and keeping it limited more. We'll talk when we get to the end of this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about some strategies that people Mm -hmm. might want to, you know, who might be experiencing this or who want to work on changing this behavior in in this direction might find helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so one area that people are starting to be interested in and take a look at, it's still a really new area of research, but is how all of this technology use is affecting our cognition? Like, how is it affecting our cognitive abilities? And a question that I've Seen out there that was also mentioned in that Adam Atler book that we mentioned that we've been mentioning is the question of whether our attention spans are getting shorter you know because of the fact that we scroll so quickly through so much information and there's just a ton of information available to us all the time that it's just this barrage and some people have wondered if perhaps that's making it harder to focus and to just really mm-hmm. pay attention sustained attention to things um, and there's one study um, that was reported in that book that we've been talking about um, the Adam Atler book that uh, Microsoft Canada measured how long people were focusing on certain information and in the year 2000 they were paying for attention to things for 12 seconds and by 2013 it had reduced down to eight seconds um, so a little difference there which is suggestive I mean I think it's, this is all very new but this suggestion that maybe it is affecting how we how we attend to things and I know for myself that what I've noticed is that I'm I have a little bit of a harder time like reading a whole article from start to finish that when Mm -hmm. sometimes when I'm reading the news or you know sort of an online something I come across online and I'm like oh that looks interesting and I start to read it a couple paragraphs in I'm like ready to move on to the next thing and sometimes I have to remind myself okay wait hold on slow down keep reading this because there's something interesting here, but I think there's just this, we're just so used to just fast paced information all the time. Mm -hmm. We get used to that.
0: Right. I think we get used to fast paced information and we get used to all of us being a little bit distracted. So, because people are picking up phones or things are being, even in my sessions, I'll see clients with our, with the phone on the table and if it bings or it makes a, a you know, something visually comes up on it, they will look to it and put their mm-hmm. hand on it. And it, it's a distractor. Even if we're in a completely engaged, meaningful conversation, it pulls us away. So we're just used to getting pulled away and we're so automatically habituated to look right yeah, or to pick up. And what I think is interesting is also thinking about how this is impacting our our children's attention span. And so we know that um, infants, the first thing that they're tracking early on is their own parents' eyes. So they're watching us, they're watching our behaviors, watching our eyes instinctively to know what to pay attention to. And if our children are watching our eyes and watching us, look at our phones and then look at them and then look at our phones, or maybe just even looking at our phones while we're doing something else. We're teaching them basically to be distracted and not to pay attention to the task at hand. And what we see is that decreases in attention span in children is a problem. Children's attention is associated with language development and problem solving and cognitive development, all these really important tasks We also see decreases in, you know, sort of potentially decreases our children's attention span with these fast, the fast speed of things. Sometimes I'll have clients that come in late and I love this saying from Kelly Wilson, which is there just is not enough time. So we really need to slow down.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about
0: driving because I I love that you brought this up in terms of our attention and how... Are impacting
1: that. Well, I think this is a really important issue because it's a potentially, you know, life threatening issue, which is that we people are in car accidents associated with distracted driving all the time. There is a statistic that in 2014, about 3000 people died in accidents that were associated with distracted driving. And Mm -hmm. because we have our phones with us all the time, and we have them in the car for legit reasons like our, you know, GPS, and we might be listening to music or a podcast. So I bet some people listening to this podcast are driving around and that's Mm -hmm. fine. But what happens is that it's right there, we end up, you know, grabbing our phone while driving, or we can't resist responding to this alert that we get. And so, you know, if you look around on the highway, you'll see people kind of waving around. And a lot of people you'll see are looking down, kind of fiddling with their phones. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, we know that just, Just even talking on the phone while driving is dangerous. Um, There's a book called The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us by some cognitive psychologists, Chris Chabrie and Dan Simons. And they write about how, you know, our attention is a limited resource. We only can pay attention to so much information at one time. And we really can't pay adequate attention to the road if we're chatting on our phones while driving. And it's not an issue of hands-free or not. It's an issue of Limited attention, and mm-hmm. same thing, maybe even worse with texting while driving, or you know, just scrolling around on whatever people are doing while they're driving. Um, and yet, it's so difficult because the phone's right there, and it's so compelling. Um, mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that it's so hard to resist the urge to just grab the phone, and yet we get away with it most of the time. So I think we think that it's an okay thing to do, but it really just takes one time when you get in a car accident mm-hmm. for it to be a huge problem.
0: Mm-hmm. So where it's big I really point. notice it when I'm um, when I want to change music and all of a sudden I find myself I picked up my phone to change the music and I'm like scrolling through my music library <laughs> like I'm looking for you know certain artists and having to look in alphabetical I mean how yeah how distracted can that right. be right I'm like trying to alphabetize somebody while I'm driving. Yeah. And, um, it, it's, it's, it's super dangerous. And after our conversations around this, I am so proud of myself, Debbie, I made a commitment and I made the commitment in front of my children. I put my phone in my purse and then I moved my purse out of the way so that I cannot reach it. So that even if a text were to come up, I can't look. And I've noticed myself, even in doing that, urges, yeah. <laughs> urges to use my phone while driving it's shocking. It's, oh, I could call this plumber right now and organize, you know, get that thing done that I need to get done. And it's actually been really nice to just know it's it's not a possibility. And I'm also doing another important thing, which is I'm modeling to my children not to be using the phone when driving because I guarantee you when our children grow up and they are, you know, 16 and driving and they're terrible drivers, they will model the behavior that you engaged in while driving. So yeah.
1: Well, we'll talk about some strategies. I think that's a great one. Just keeping it out of reach because, you know, it is a hard behavior to resist, but it is such an important one. And it's, you know, it's, I think, a really important thing for people to think about and put some some effort into that.
0: And it's fascinating when you put limits on things when you start to you actually start to notice urges, which points a little bit to that dopamine.
1: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's the minute you know, it's just hard to, it's like hard to walk away from a slot machine. It's hard to not grab your phone. So another area I think that we wanted to talk about in terms of problems is how, how technology affects relationships. And I think we see this in so many different domains, you know, whether you're out to dinner with a friend or a romantic partner, and you're distracted, or just, you know, disengaging. Um, one area, I like to call it parenting while distracted. One area that is certainly a concern is, you know, it's really easy when you're um, a parent to spend a lot of time distracted because of technology um and i think one thing that people have wondered is how is this going to affect child development and the bottom line is we don't know the long-term effects i mean i think people a lot of people are concerned about that um this whole generation of kids whose parents are always checking screens i mean partly because it's just so new the technology is so new also because there's just so many factors in development that it's just really hard to isolate something like that and it's very difficult to set up a controlled study of something like that um because it's such a pervasive behavior but i can tell you you know children are just exposed to a lot of screens and media they're it's they're in schools now that's just the norm to have computers and devices around school and involved with homework and parents are distracted and we i think that people are worried about what that will mean with Just interpersonal attachment and the ability to have social skills, like the ability to read social cues in person, the ability to resolve problems face to face instead of over text message. And so I think in general, we just, you know, people are concerned about what that will mean. And and it's just food for thought. (laughs)
0: So children, they learn empathy by watching how their actions impact others. So if you call someone a bad name in class and they, you see them start crying in front of you and then the teacher sees them start crying, you have just had a learning experiment. Oh, when I say this word to somebody, it makes them feel that way and I get in trouble and there's, you know, if you call someone a bad name over text or say something mean about someone over social media you don't get that same feedback and this is really important when we think about our adolescents are communicating more and more via text and social media than they are in person they're not getting that that feedback of that hurt and it's actually the the, the emotional feedback back which is important for being able to develop sensitive empathic relationships and we Atler reports on an analysis of 72 studies that showed that empathy has decreased between the year of 1979 and 2000 in college students. This may may be one of the aspects of it. There's other sub information around narcissism being on the rise. So there may be a number of factors. But this is an important thing for us to be able to do, to be able to take the perspective of others and be able to read the emotional cues of others. So an emoji is not the same as a facial expression. And if we think about, yes, in terms of children's relating to one another, but let's also even look at our own romantic relationships. How are we communicating with our partners or our, you know, our spouses? So there, there's these steps that we are taking that part of our human relating to one another is seeing the facial expression. There's so much tonal information in our voice. So what you read in a text is just has lost so much important richness to human connection because it's just words and there's no eye contact. So that's what I I worry about, even just in our relating to, to our partners and our spouses, um, our children, our friends.
1: Yeah. I, Yeah. I, I mean, this is just a thought that's just randomly occurring to me as you're talking about this, but I think that there's a reason why those little pictures and emojis are so frequently used, which is that there is still that desire to convey that in person, Something, you know, the emotion or the facial expression, but it's so different when it's a little, you know, face yellow face on a screen versus an actual human being in front of you. Yeah. And so many
0: times I'm sitting there scrolling through the emojis and I can't quite find the right one.
1: Like probably quite right. Just say what I'm feeling. Right. There you go. (laughs)
0: Trying to find the right one.
1: So another and another social kind of relationship issue that that might be problematic is social comparison, you know, just this idea that we see what other people post online, and people tend to only post themselves in these kind of happy, perfect moments of their lives, you know, going on this fabulous trip or eating this delicious meal or feeling really happy. Um, And that sometimes we can get into a little bit of social comparison with that and, and some some perfectionism for ourselves of feeling sort of not good enough or like, Oh, I should be more like that. Um, There's a book, a recent book called the happiness effect, how social media is driving a generation to appear perfect at any cost by Donna Fritas. I hope I said that right. Um, and she talks about a study with 200 college students where only 19% said that they were open about their true emotions. And 73% said that they pretty much always appear happy on social media. So it just gives you a sense of what people are projecting into the world. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of pressure to do that. And you know, maybe social media isn't the best place to be super vulnerable because it's a pub, you know, it's out there and it's very public. Um, You know, it's permanently there. But it's really important, I think, to keep that in mind when people start to get into that social comparison and feel bad about themselves because, well, I didn't get to go on this fabulous vacation or, you know, Mm -hmm. wear this beautiful new outfit or go have this exciting time is that they're not telling you the whole story. And, you know, that, if you actually called them up or saw them in person, you might get to know more about what's really going on.
0: Right. And it's actually the, what's really going on, which allows us to connect with one another. Right. You know, I think about my clients that I just really, just really appreciate. And part of why I really appreciate about them is that they share with me the vulnerable stuff, like what they're not, trust me, they're not posting what they tell me on social media. (laughs)
1: And there's some research about that that we tend to feel more connected and and we tend to like and love people more when they're more full people who have those vulnerabilities and who have struggle you know when mm-hmm. people have that sort of perfect facade they're less likable to us because they don't seem as human so yeah, right it's food for right. thought
0: so the last uh issue that comes up around technology use is around physical health and it really, the increase in technology has taken a toll on our body. So, we can all do a practice right now and pick up your phone. You know where it is. <laughs>
1: <Pick> <laughs> you're it probably out. hearing our voices and through it, let's be it, honest. Um, and most, most it's, the time but not if, is, not if you're driving. Not uh, if you're driving. Yeah, not driving. <laughs>
0: Uh, Most of the time, what we do is we look down at our phone and what that does is it puts a lot of pressure on our neck and we get the forward neck slump and the, you know, phone head. So what one thing you can do is hold your phone up to your face and you will see more and more people doing this and pull your chin back. We all need to be doing that. The other thing is how, you know, how our technology keeps us uh, really still. And if you come, if you came in, well, you did come into my house. We have no furniture in (laughs) front of any screen in our home. We um, want to pay attention to our physical health and how maybe even some of the apps that are designed to make us healthier, they become more about that goal-directed activity of trying to meet the goal of the app rather than paying attention to our internal cues around movement and exercise. So if you're still walking around your living room at 9.30 at night to get your steps in, it's actually probably not that great for your sleep. And probably not that, you know, even beneficial for your body to be walking in circles at nighttime. <laughs> so we can actually use these bodies and the information in our bodies to guide our movement or to guide our eating, as we talked about in Appetite Awareness episode, as opposed to some external machine that tells us, even tells us when to breathe. I don't need my I don't need my walks to tell me to take a breath,
1: okay? <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope can. not, yeah. Well, so... The next question, of course, is what do we do about all this? So we're going to kind of move in now to talking a little bit about a few ideas that we had based on our psychology training for how you might, uh, you know, manage technology in your life in a more effective way. Um, And the first idea that we had is related to habits and just kind of behaviors. Um, And one thing that can be really helpful is when you're talking about You know, we're talking about behavior change here is to set up your environment to make the behavior less automatic so that it's easier to change it. So one thing that I found really helpful that I would really recommend people do is to change the alerts that you get on your smartphone. So I used to get alerts from social media, from a few news sources. And so a lot of times I'd just be grabbing my phone, maybe because I'm about to walk out the door or I'm moving it or plugging it in or something like that. And or if I needed to make a call or something. And as I pick it up, I see all these alerts. So Facebook alerts and whatnot. And I would check them respond to them and the next thing i know all this time was lost because i had mm-hmm. without even thinking about it, it was just so automatic i would be sucked into social media um so now i changed my phone the only thing i get alerted to are phone calls and text messages now mm-hmm. so i can still go on facebook and i do but i have to open the app before i know what's going on so mm-hmm what it does for me is that it makes it more my choice. Like I check it when I want to spend a few minutes on social media. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't right. just get sucked in because of an alert popping up. Right. Another. Yeah. Type- so putting some oh.
0: barriers in. Yeah. I yeah. think putting some barriers in. So anytime we have an automatic behavior, we want to try to figure out a way to slow it down Yeah. and putting those barriers in and not um, is, is super helpful. And likewise, I think even just the research on setting some times with which you engage in certain activities. So I will check my email when kids are in bed, or I'll check my email if I'm between a client or I have a break in a client, but I'm not going to be checking my email at the grocery store or checking my email, when, you know, so having specific times when you engage in certain behaviors, rather than it just being a constant ongoing thing.
1: Yeah, I'm going to work yeah. on that with email. I think that's helpful. Um, to just put it in a more discreet mm-hmm. period of time. Okay, another suggestion is get yourself an alarm clock if you don't have one and keep your smartphone out of your bed. Um, just what I do, I've started doing this and I found it so helpful. I charge my phone in the kitchen, which is downstairs from my bedroom every night. There's a, mm-hmm. Every once in a while I violate this and I almost always regret it because then it's right there mm-hmm. and it's too easy to just pick it up first thing in the morning or stay on it too late at night. So I really Mm -hmm. recommend, you know, don't use your, your smartphone for your alarm clock. Instead, before you're going to bed, stop your screen time, plug it in somewhere else and just leave it out. Um, that, I think that really makes it so that you're not just checking it too late or first thing in the morning. Um,
0: -hmm. I really like not checking my phone first thing in the morning. That has been a big, um, just really important practice that when I wake up, the first thing that is going into my brain is not newsfeed.
1: Yeah. Right. My brain,
0: you know, and so when I wake up, I do my, you know, I do my morning practice and it's not until I'm done with my morning practice of, you know, meditating and writing and having that time that is really doing what's most important to me before going into that, that world and getting my, my, my time because it can just, yeah, it could steal, it could steal it from you. Your
1: morning. Yeah, so, and whatever um, news is available to you will still be there 30 minutes later. So, you know, it'll still be there. Right, right. Um, another, we actually really talked about this already, but this habit of looking at the phone while driving or texting while driving or what have you, um, you know, just set up the environment to avoid that temptation. So I think what you were saying that you keep it in your purse out of reach, that's really handy. Um, if you don't need it for GPS or something like that, you can put it either turn it off or put it on airplane mode while you're driving just to reduce the temptation to grab it or to respond to a, an alert. Um, or just so limit yourself, just pay attention to that urge and don't do it, just make a really a point of that.
0: So it's also important to be active and not passive in social media use. Um, there's some research that shows that when people use Facebook in a passive way, they feel worse about themselves. But when they engage in conversation and comment on others, they actually don't see the same kind of harm. So that's the going in and actually being an active user rather than just kind of floating around in there endlessly. It's taking back control over your technology use mm-hmm. and being um, intentional in how you're using and why you're using. There's this other concept of um goals and trying to, rather than having our technology used, be so sort of driven by all this goal-directed behavior of number of likes or Instagram looks, or they have set into place more of sort of a systems approach. So what are you doing on a daily basis that increases your odds of happiness in the long run? And really asking yourself, is this fear of missing out on something, me getting in here to be on the Skype call with you, actually interfering with something that is part of my core happiness and my core values. And we have limited time in our day. Plan accordingly mm-hmm. in how you're gonna use how you're gonna use your time and what's important to you. And if there are people that you want to stay connected to through social media, using that time to stay connected to them, but not using time, you know, in other areas that are just maybe depleting.
1: Yeah. And maybe so sometimes we have the problems. fear of missing out on the wrong thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And then I think another one
0: is managing others' expectations. So people will expect you to get back to them at a certain frequency, if that's the frequency with which you get back to them. This is something I've very much learned as a therapist, haven't you? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. Around yeah. returning phone calls and returning texts, that if you are quick to respond, people will expect you to be quick to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And you can set it up so that you tell people I don't I don't get back to, I tell my clients I don't get back to them, you know, often till the end of the day. Emails I often will not get back to within the same day. Phone calls sometimes it's 24 hours. And part of that is because when I'm with you in session, I'm 100% with you. So that means I'm 100% with my clients in their sessions and I'm not You know, I'm taking the time between sessions to either stretch or move or take a breath and meditate myself so that I can be prepared for the next client so that I can be fully present. And so you get you get a more present me. And that often they they say, okay, well, I'm willing to, you know, wait the 24 hours Mm -hmm. and and we can do that, you know, for other people in our lives too, family members, friends.
1: Yeah. And people just get used to that. Yeah. Another area we wanted to talk about is parenting with media awareness. Um, We talked about this, you know, parenting while distracted thing. Um, I think it's really important to be a good role model of moderation and limited screen times to your kids, just what you're Mm -hmm. teaching them as they're watching you. Um, So what I recommend people do is just think about your own values about screen time for your kids and just do your best to stick to that. Um, So, you know, it's not like it's horrible to have any screen time whatsoever, but you need to kind of decide for yourself what you think is is reasonable and fits with your values as a parent and then make that happen. And I know for my family, we one of our values, we don't like to have the TV on just on all the time. Um, I, I just don't like it to be in the main living space and just to be sort of background noise. That's to me personally, I find that you know drives me bananas, but I also don't want my kids to have that always you know, in the background. Um, But we do love movie night, we all enjoy it, we pop popcorn, we go down to the basement, which is where we keep our TV, and we make a big evening out of it. It's really fun. And so to me, those, that's just kind of how we set it up. And you know, it's a slippery slope, I can't say that I don't occasionally, you know, turn it on when I maybe perhaps shouldn't according to my values. But, you know, I try to do my best to keep it in check. I am so we are
0: so media limited here. My kids have not been exposed to very much at all. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely an outlier. I'm not on Facebook and I just have very limited, um, it, social media as well as technology in our home. And it is about figuring out what's important to you and, and using that as your guide, as opposed to maybe what other people are doing, as opposed to fearing missing out, you know, and, and modeling that. Yeah, for, for, every, you, for your kids that you can do that. What's right. important to you and be flexible.
1: Yeah, and well. every family is different, so you have to figure out what works for you. Another practice
0: was, which is engage in looking at each other in the eyes, and it's sort of the lost art of having connection through eye contact. I know that um, in in act therapy, that's actually eyes on is actually one of the exercises that we do where we look at each other in the eyes and actually look for the sweetness behind the other person's eyes and also the suffering behind another person's eyes. And when we connect through eye contact, there's actually something that's really human, I think, transmitted. And I know that even through social, so as I'm looking at you, Debbie, we're like looking at each other in the eyes right now. <laughs> on Skype, I also yeah. know yeah, on Skype that even looking at a screen at someone, there's some research that shows that even if you're looking at them in the eyes on the screen, you're actually not, really looking in their eyes or looking towards the camera or slightly off and getting back into that practice of whether you're at the checkout, you know, getting a coffee, taking that moment to look into somebody's eyes and say, I see you and allow yourself to be seen is a really important human experience. And to do the same with our children, Mm -hmm. teach them the art of eye contact because it's one that is getting lost.
1: I agree. Yeah. Well, and finally, I think the last little, little, nugget that we have here is just this idea of making a point of putting your devices down sometimes just put them down you know maybe during a meal dinner with your family or friends or a social interaction make some time when you just aren't plugged in you know maybe some people do like an analog day a digital free day every now and then or even just a couple of hours when you leave it behind or you just turn it off put it away Um, And and pay attention to how you feel when you are kind of hooked into overusing technology versus when you're unplugged and just notice the difference. Um, You know, try that sort of uh, a friend of mine, her husband says, get in and then get out this approach that Mm -hmm. you sort of set aside some time. Maybe you want to have 20 minutes twice a day to check the news and social media. It's like, go in, do it and then Mm -hmm. get out and then and then stay out for a while. So just maybe encouraging people to have those periods where you just aren't plugged in and just notice how that feels. Okay. So I'm going to unplug for
0: tonight. I'm going to turn my phone on a airplane and go get a good night's rest. How about you?
1: Yes, me too. Yeah. I think that sounds, sounds lovely. Good. Okay. Well, thanks yeah. everyone for listening and thank you, Diana.
0: Thank you. And we'll put our resources up on our webpage and we'll be back for more of conversations between Debbie Ray and myself. And so keep listening.
1: Thank Take care. you. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to psychologists off the clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.